Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Great Northeast BJJ podcast. This episode, we sit down and talk old school Boston BJJ stories with our friend Kenny Florian. We brought in an extra host for this one, Nate Ryan from Mass BJJ. It's a lot of great stories in it. Hope you guys enjoy it. As always, this episode is brought to you by the world famous Tortuga Soap Company. All the things you need to keep you looking and smelling good. Use the discount code PODCAST and get 20% off your order. Port City BJJ, located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, home of the Great Northeast BJJ podcast. If you're ever in the area, please come check us out. We love visitors. PortCityBJJ.com. And also brought to you by BJJ Prehab. BJJ Prehab is a program of custom videos designed to help prevent injuries and keep you on the mat, or in this case, get you back on the mat healthy and ready to train. Thanks everybody for listening. Hope everybody's all right out there. Hope you're healthy and safe. Look forward to seeing you on the mat soon. Thanks, everybody. Peace. All right, what's up? Welcome, everybody, to the Great Northeast BJJ Podcast. Today, we got a special guest on the podcast as a as a uh, as a podcast host Nate <laughs> we brought him on because he said he was the Florian family chess champion uh, we wanted to find out if that was true or if it wasn't so we also brought on Kenny Florian to find out uh, <laughs> the proof behind this welcome Kenny Florian what's up brother thanks so much for having me guys good to see you all it's good to see you man um, is that true? Did did Nate Ryan actually beat you the last time you played chess? <laughs> and is he the Florian family chess champion? Right I, I don't name. remember that. I don't really remember that happening, but uh, he was okay. He was a decent chess player. You had to stay on your toes a little bit with Nate. Um, I won the last time Kenny and I played, and we've never played since. It's so. possible. It's possible. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, in, in regards to chess, um probably on the terrible side so uh yeah it's possible it's funny uh we went out when we my first trip out to pans as a blue belt after we all competed we went somewhere and i was playing kenny in uh air hockey oh yeah and this guy does like it's not free let's forget about losing but if you score on him <laughs> it's really <laughs> and that's air hockey that's air hockey. <laughs> you think about how pissed he's going to get if you, if you get competing on the mat with him. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, man. Like, uh, growing up in a large family, uh, you know, one of six, as you guys know, uh, we did a lot of various competitions. You know, we were definitely – it's probably the case for a lot of families who play Monopoly, but we were definitely that family that after we played Monopoly, we were not talking, each other, talking to each other for like an hour. You know, be like, I can't believe you fucking got boardwalk. That's bullshit. You know, you, you, you're cheating me. You know, who's running this bank? Uh, so, yeah. It's all hey. luck, right? Like, yeah, exactly. it's just fucking lucky. You just got lucky. You never beat me in a red. 99 games, you would win. That's the one you win. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, yeah, being so competitive, it, it has its uh, positives and its negatives. I heard your Valley Tudo career got started in the backyard with Edgar setting up setting up uh the kumite is that is that true <laughs> pretty much uh you know 
I lived in a neighborhood with a bunch of other kids and, you know, whether it was friends that I invited over or, you know, kids in the neighborhood that would come over and play, it somehow would always, you know, evolve into some kind of competition um, where, you know, if you won, you, you were great, you got the gold medal. If you lost, um, there was some kind of, like, punishment involved. And eventually, like, those competitions evolved into, you know, like, wrestling competitions or fighting competitions. And, you know, we didn't know what the hell we were doing as kids, but that's kind of how it all started. My brother Edgar was kind of like the, uh, the, the Don King of the neighborhood, if you will. The ringleader. I guess he yeah. didn't institute any, any weight classes at that point. No, no weight classes. No, we were doing, we were way ahead of our time. Yeah. Sorry, Hori and Gracie. You didn't invite, you didn't invent Valley Tudo. I think it was my brother. Edgar. Yeah. Hey man, for you, even when they had weight classes, you didn't seem to care. <laughs> yeah. I, I was used to, you know, that's the conditioning of my childhood. I, I think I did take that into consideration. Uh, ignorantly going into uh, various weight classes. You know, I, I think, you know, Nate has a similar story. You know, I think that's why we kind of connected is like when we saw, you know, a, a small hoist Gracie defeat all these big guys, we thought that was like normal. And it was like part of the deal of proving a point with your Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, you know, not, not only that Brazilian jiu-jitsu was the best, but also that perhaps your technique was better than, than someone who might be bigger than you. And that, and then that can rule. And I think it's a very powerful thing to believe in. I still believe in that to, to a certain extent. My body is probably paid for some of those things because in that process of experimenting, you you definitely take your lumps. And um, But, you know, you just didn't say no to, you know, a 250-pound guy asking you to roll. It just wasn't, you know, now I, I try to pair up, you know, my students to be like, you go with him, you go with them. I try not to have those big mismatches because, you know, for whatever reason, just to avoid injuries and things like that. But back in the day, you just picked whoever was available. You just that's that's what you did. Um, now it's a little bit different, but um, yeah. I remember that uh, that Grappler's Quest eight man where you it was like the biggest size difference you'll ever see, which was like Kenny and and uh, Jeff Munson, Cronenberg, Jeff Munson, uh, Cronenberg, oh, yeah, Jeff Munson yeah, too, Jeff Munson as well. So yeah, I, I went against Ken Ken Cronenberg. I think a couple times, twice, but yeah, he was. He was massive, but, you know, luckily I was able to win both times, but, um, you know, it, it was also, also a much scarier thing. Like if I get a Kimura on Ken Cronenberg, eh, it's not a big deal. If he gets a Kimura on, uh, on Kenny Florian, it could be very bad, you know, if he decides <laughs> to break it. So it's like, you know, yeah. So, um, I want to say like, they asked me last minute to hop on and I just want to say, George had asked me if I had some questions for you. And I basically sent a text back insult. They were all insulting questions. And then his response was, why don't you come on after hearing all those questions? These, these are the questions. Who introduced him to Dana White? Parentheses, me. Who brought him sandwiches when he would open his wallet and had no money? Parentheses, me. Who traveled to every stinky tournament he was invited to with him before he was famous? Parentheses, me. So who, in short, does he owe his career to? Parentheses, me. <laughs> well, I got to say, Nate, Nate definitely did suffer a lot for, for the cause of Kenny Florian. Uh, you know, we had a lot of training sessions where um, Nate would refuse to tap so, you know, he was just making me tougher and making me better. He had no idea, but, um, you know, he, he definitely, I remember, remember the first time we did uh, MMA training, Nate? <laughs> <laughs> I had, 
I had, I called him that night. I'm like, I'm like, I have bruises that are, I can feel it. They're knuckle marks on the back of my head. Cause he had me down. He was punching the back of my head and we were using like there, we couldn't really get MMA gloves. We had like these little, I don't even think they were four ounces. They barely covered your hand. And he was just pounding the back of my head. I remember thinking, I'm not going to tap to this. Like I'm, yeah. but he was just, I couldn't move. And I was just getting, and I had all these bruises like in the, in the knuckle imprints of Kenny's hand on the back of my head. I, I don't know what the big deal was. It, we, we were just taking what we learned from kickboxer. We wrapped our hands yeah. and we dipped them in glue and glass <laughs> and, we, and we sparred. So I don't know why Nate's complaining. He's alive. He's fine. His head See, looks okay. George, the part you didn't put on there was the last part of that was Kenny's response is, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> Did you die though? Did yeah. you die? So I would say the, the real thing, the way Kenny, like, and I actually don't even know if I know, like, I know you guys were training before you came in, but my first day at the school, you were like, you and your brother, Keith, were the first people I think I met and partnered up with. What was your introduction to Boston BJJ? I know you trained a little bit before. Yeah. How did you get, find Roberto? How did you come in? And what was your experience coming in? And was it the downstairs that you came to? Um, it was, um, yeah, I was, I wasn't in the upstairs one. So I, I, I was a little bit later, but okay. So here's the story. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people know this, but so Keith and I, we, we, our first introduction to jujitsu was essentially watching the UFC and we would just kind of, we were essentially doing like pro wrestling on each other. We were trying to do those moves that we learned from watching the UFC. And we had a little bit of a, a Kung Fu karate background when we were kids um, and we saw the UFC, we just became addicted to it. Um, and we were watching and every once in a while we try to do the moves and things like that. We had no idea what the heck we were doing. Um, and eventually we, um, went to a hoist Gracie seminar, which was in white Plains, New York at the time. Um, Keith and I drove down, we stayed at some crappy hotel, um, did the seminar. It was either one or two days. Maybe, maybe it was, yeah, it was like a, a long, long session. We did like the session for everybody then there was an, an additional session that was like an advanced session which, which we stuck around for and that's kind of how we really were formalized into brazilian jiu-jitsu was through a seminar through hoist gracie and like you know he was our hero so looking at him it was just amazing and uh we we didn't look back like i probably trained every single day that i could when i wasn't playing soccer um we just trained all those moves from the seminar we bought um Horion's, um first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructional. We, we drilled stuff off of that. I remember taking notes and organizing everything as far as moves and how it all went together. And that was the first time that I kind of was like started developing systemized training and things like that. Um, and I just couldn't get out of my head. I was just obsessed. And Keith and I just trained in our basement um, before Nate helped us put a, a, a mat down there. We had a green gross like carpet over cement and we would train takedowns, fighting, jujitsu, we'd drill, we'd have like rug burns and we just trained there for hours. Um, we decided to do, we heard about a, a tournament that was going to take place in Connecticut. It was called the New England Grappling Championship, which was what it was called before it turned into NAGA, the North American Grappling Championship or Association. So we, um, we did this tournament, you know, we had trained for three months, so we thought we were at least intermediate level. Uh, so we, we joined, we, we competed in the intermediate divisions. 
Uh, Keith submitted all of his opponents and won first place. I submitted my opponents up until the finals and lost in the final. I went back and forth and got submitted myself with an arm lock. And, um, yeah, I, I just was hooked on it. And at that tournament, a guy named Craig Baum came over to us, and he's like, where do you guys train? And, like, I remember kind of looking at Keith and I'm like, oh, yeah, we just trained in our basement, like, off of videotapes and stuff. Um, he's like, oh, we, where, where do you guys live? And we're like, oh, we're in Boston. He's like, you should train at Humberto Maya School. That's where I go. I, I live in Rhode Island, but I drive all the way up. He's got this school called Boston Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You should check it out. I think the tournament was either on a Saturday or Sunday. And Monday, uh, me and my brothers were at Boston Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and we saw John Frankel and Patrick Barbieri and all these other guys who had purple belts on. And to us, seeing an American with a purple belt was yeah. like seeing a unicorn. Um, so I was like, oh, my God. Like, they actually have purple belts here. This is crazy. We have to train with these guys. I had never seen an American purple belt. Um, and yeah, we, we signed up that day. Um, actually Roberto, I, I think just, uh, him being Roberto was like, just show up, man. No problem. Like, we could talk about price another day. Like no problem. Just come in and train. We talk later and we all just started training. And, um, yeah, it was just kind of me and Keith who, who ultimately stuck around and, um, Roberto just kind of invited us with open arms and um, was extre extremely gracious, ended up giving us the scholarship, you know, to, to me and Keith and, and Kirk eventually. And um, yeah, that was, that was that. You know, it's, it's so funny. Craig Baum is probably the most like unknown person that so many people owe something to at Boston BJJ for training, because whether it's something like that or the website that he put up that drew so many of the people in, like yes, Craig is he, his name. He's an OG, dude. Up. Yeah, he's yeah. an OG. He was training for a really long time back when not many people knew what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was. Like when I was training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, not many people knew knew what it was. And Craig was real. Craig and his brother Jeff, of course, were yeah. were really ahead of the curve. They were doing grappling before. They were into judo and 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 various types of martial arts. And you know, uh, they're just super nice. And I, I never would have known about Boston Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu if it wasn't for Craig you know, coming up to me and, and letting me know about this place that existed that was, you know, 45 minutes down the road. I, I had no idea there was even a Brazilian jiu-jitsu place close by. There was one, it was Joe Matthews. <laughs> he, was, he was a, a blue or a purple belt. Time. Yeah, he was like a blue or purple belt under Hickson. Um, and I remember going to check it out and I just, it was just kind of, I didn't like the vibe. It was, I don't know, no offense to Joe, it was just a little, it was a smaller place. And Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu wasn't the only thing that they did. And that's really what I wanted to do. Um, the only thing I wanted to do at the time. So, It's funny. That's my experience. And Frankel that was on here recently, his experience was mm -hmm. finding Joe Maffey and Roberto and then being like, yeah. Oh, we're good. yeah. We all you know what's funny is the day I showed up, you and Keith had purple belts. Yeah. And I got on um, my first day, I had done a little bit of grappling previous to that. I got my slats kicked in by everyone on the mat. I remember getting back in my car, I had rug burns all over my face <laughs> and I and I get home and I was like, how did, how did it go? Did you have fun? I'm like, I like got my ass handed to me by a 120 pound Japanese kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So were you, so when you started jujitsu, were you still at BC playing soccer? I, um, let's see. Yes. That's when I started. I believe I was either 19 or 20. 
Um, and actually on my, the reason I found out, this is the other part of the story. The reason I found out about this Hoist Gracie seminar, and this was just randomness. Um, one of our defensive players named Tony Geoffrey, his brother, Daryl Geoffrey, um, was a blue or, or yeah, a blue belt under Hoist Gracie. He had a Hoist Gracie affiliate in New York. And he told me that Hoist was going to be going out there in the summer and the summer because I was telling him how, how much I loved you know, UFC and things like that, how I wanted to learn, but there was no place to really learn. Um, and that's kind of how that started as well. So it was through a connection on, on the Boston College soccer team that I, that I actually started training and presenting jiu-jitsu as well. Did, did your um, dad, so your dad did judo. Right? Yes. Did he ever show you stuff? I mean, I remember him showing stuff in your basement when we would go down there. Yeah, and yeah, I know. At this point, was he showing you guys stuff or were you even listening? He definitely, or were you just like, he definitely yeah, did. He definitely did. Like when we were younger, he'd be like, no, well, you know, here's some throws and judo trips and things. I'm like, yeah, but if you grab me, I'm just going to hit you. I'm going to punch you like, or I can kick you. So like grappling doesn't work. Sorry. Um, and he told us the story that he wanted to do martial arts when he, when he came to um, Boston, he didn't really have any, ju you know, judo places nearby the hospital. And um, he walked into a karate place and they kind of did like sparring on the first day. And he was telling me how he's like throwing everybody. He's like, I just grabbed him and threw it. I was like throwing people because that's what I did. And he's like, no one could hit me. And he's like, it was crazy. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm like, but if you really went against the karate guy, like he, you'd be dead. Like if they wanted to hit you. So did, um, he train, did he train judo in Peru? He did. Yeah. He started, I think in high school and then got his black belt while he was in medical school, I believe. Um, and yeah, just kind of loved it. Um, yeah. And, and he felt, you know, it was important, you know, he, Peru can be a dangerous place, uh, at times and, and Lima and some of the big cities. And, you know, he, I remember him telling his stories, how would he use it like once or twice? And, um, you know, he wanted us all to, to learn how to do self-defense. When you were at, um, when you were at BC or even before doing, you know, cause you played high level soccer pretty much your entire life. Mm -hmm. Did you ever compete or did you know Alex Carolexis at that time? Did you play soccer against him? I didn't. You know, it's possible. It, it's funny. We, we talked about that and it's very possible. Cause he knows some of the guys that uh, I played with. I think he was playing always a year younger than me for whatever reason. Um, and we knew so many of the same people uh, and had played with the same people, but we're not quite sure if we actually played against each other. It's very possible. Um, he played for South Shore, uh, like the South Shore premier team. I played on Charles River United. Um, so anyways, um, yeah, pretty, pretty funny. Yeah, I was, I was doing this kind of connect the dots thing, and I'm like, Alex fought Littlefields and Mike Varner. Yeah. You, you, got, you guys didn't actually compete again until after Ultimate Fighter, right? Exactly. That was, my, that was our first fight. Or at least my first fight off of the ultimate fighter, you know, after uh, we fought at um, 170 pounds. Yeah. That was my first, yeah, that was my first fight uh, after the show. Right. And the first, the first uh, Kenny Florian elbow got elbow. the Oh, <laughs> yeah. Lieben. Yeah. yeah. Lieben was well, Lieben, Lieben was the first one exactly on the ultimate fighter. Right. And then Carol Axis after that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was at middleweight, right? Uh, the one against Lieben was at 185 pounds. Yeah, the one at, uh, uh, against Lieben was at 185 pounds. I remember him telling me on fight night, on fight day, that we were going to fight. He's like, Kenny, I weigh 205 pounds, Kenny. You're in trouble. I'm about to smash some cats. You know, I was like, oh, man, here we go. Um, but, 
Yeah, he was a big boy. What was it like rolling with uh, with Pat and Frankel and Roberto when you showed up? It was awesome, man. You know, um, back in the day, you kind of felt like you were learning magic, you know. Um, so there was just a different vibe about going to jiu-jitsu. You knew you were doing something that very few people in the whole world had the opportunity of, of training. So it was um, – it was a special time. Um, I trained with uh, Pat and John a lot. Um, I trained with R- Roberto a decent amount, um, but Pat was kind. Of, I kind of consider Pat one of my mentors, and, and and John as well was awesome to train with, and really was extremely helpful. Not only um, with you know me starting out in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and showing me some cool things, but um, also you know when I started training in MMA, as Nate remembers. My first real experience with MMA was um, training with John Frankel and him showing us some very basic striking and some some clinch work that was extremely valuable uh, as I started kind of moving up um, in, in my career in mixed martial arts in, in, in Massachusetts. And um, I remember him getting ready for fights and us kind of doing our best to help John get ready. But John was um, so impressive because he was such a complete mixed martial artist, like before there was true mixed martial arts, you know, like there were guys who, um, you know, Oh, I, I trained a little bit of striking back in the day, or, you know, I, I do some jujitsu, but John was like a high level purple belt, uh, brown belt. Um, and you know, did Muay Thai for a long time, could stick in knife fight, you know, trained with all these Im- impressive guys all the way, you know, from Hickson starting in his jujitsu career, Claudio Franza, um, to the dog brothers for stick fighting and, you know, um, some excellent uh, Muay Thai guys, Dan and Asanto and, and that crew. So, it, you know, it, I, I was extremely blessed to, to have contact with someone like John and Patrick Barbieri, who was, you know, at the time, um, just kind of like a Zen master when it came to jujitsu. He, he, he didn't say a whole lot. Um, he, he would give you certain tips and things like that. But his teaching really came in the form of grappling and um what was so impressive about his style, which which really influenced me, was the fact that um, his positioning was always superior to yours. So no matter if you came back with some new moves or this and that, he, he really knew kind of at the core of what was proper for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He, I don't know if it was an intuitive feel or if he was able to figure it out or whatever, but he could move really slowly and beat you up and kind of grind you into this slow death uh, and, and suffocate you and... Um, you know, just experiencing that kind of pressure and that kind of weight distribution um, had a big time impact on me. And I know that dealing with that helped me deal with a lot of, you know, uh, of the tough competitions that I deal with, a lot of tough training partners that I deal with in Brazil and, um, you know, kind of set me, set me on a path to kind of, um, you know, know how to suffer, I guess you could say. I, I think it's interesting, you know, you talk about Pat that way. And I think that has, you know, that had a lot of influence on your jiu-jitsu as well. You know, a lot of people, you'll, you'll see them compete. You're like, oh, I can, you know, I can stop that technique. I know that technique. No, not a problem. But uh, like Pat, when it's, it's very different when you see Kenny Florian do something versus when you feel him do it. Mm. So if you're actually, you know, he, you've got your grips on someone, you're grappling with someone, uh, that kind of pressure and that, that ability to kind of grind someone down and keep them from being able to establish it, you know, hip movement and things like that. Yes. It's, it's pretty incredible, man. Like you get one hand in that collar and it just seems like there's nothing someone can do to get away from it. But you yeah, might yeah. on the outside looking in, you know? Yeah, no, thanks. You know, I, I um, 
to, to me, Patrick, more than anybody coming up, I think uh, epitomized um, what I would admire or what I heard about uh, Hicks and Gracie, you know, um, how, you know, the invisible jujitsu and, you know, <laughs> the idea of, you know, moving slowly, not having to rush, um, being extremely calm in, in even very difficult situations, um, you know, just always kind of having the upper hand. And um, I, that's the stuff that kind of always intrigued me and which I always wanted to pursue is like, okay, I know the technique and Pat knows the exact same technique, but why is his better? And why can he control me better? And why can he do all these things? And I, I think those are the things that I really wanted to find out is, okay, there, there's something going on. It isn't magic. It's got to be something that I can figure out. And how do I do that? So I, I think just trying to mimic what he was doing and, and, and really, you know, copy, frankly, what, what he was doing um, got me a little bit closer to the path. And, um, you know, Matt, uh, Pat was one of those guys who was just, no matter who came into the academy, um, he didn't seek it, didn't do anything like that. But when it came down to do it, he was so calm in his approach and always composed and just really had that master mindset from the get-go. There was nothing forced. You never saw Pat really spaz out to try to get a position. So to him, what was cool is it wasn't about, I want to beat you. Um, I want to beat you specifically. It was, no, I want to do this the right way, um, which, which I thought was cool. Like he's trying to do martial arts. He's not trying to beat you. I'm not sure I was always, you know, on that, I kind of would go back and forth between me, be like, I need to beat him or, you know, which is not as deep of a, of a way of looking at martial arts, you know, and, and um, he really kind of showed me that path. Um, not so much with talking, just with, with doing and, and, and demonstrating it on the mat and, and his approach. And he was so far ahead of the game in regards to like, meditating and eating well and organic food and, you know, going to whole food. I mean, he was always way ahead of that. I mean, he really, really took care of himself, um, you know, pretty early on. I think that's probably enabled him to still be on the mat today training, you know, yeah. a lot of these people burn out and get the physical injuries that keep them from getting on the mat when they're a little older. Um, and you were also one of the first groups, you and Keith uh, from the Boston Brazilian group anyway, that started actually going to Brazil to train. Can you talk about like what that was like and kind of trying to assimilate into a new group like that and that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, um, another great training tool back in the day were these things called VHS tapes. You guys remember this? Uh, we, we would buy these box-like videos and we'd put them into our, you know, VCR and we would watch these tournaments from Brazil. And the, the sportive aspect of Jiu-Jitsu was really intriguing to us as well. And um, we knew all the tournaments were down there. All the best guys who were winning the world championship were down there. And Keith and I would start to discuss like, Hey, what would it be like to go to Brazil and train? Like those guys are at a different level. You know, maybe we can look into this. And we, we talked to Roberto and, and see what, you know, saw like what, what we could do to, to make that happen. And he ended up hooking us up with some friends. And I remember reading my like Portuguese book and I, I spoke Spanish. So that helped. But I was like, literally trying to read Portuguese on the way, like on the plane ride to Brazil. It was just so exciting, you know, flying over there and just like the nervousness of like, man, this is kind of a crazy place. Like, let's see what happens. The first time here is just Keith and I traveling by ourselves. And um, it was just an amazing experience. Like, again, imagine like, you know, 
30 Patrick Barbieri's on the mats, all with different styles and approaches, you know, uh, you know, world, world champions, black belt, brown belts. Like we trained with Ted today when he was a brown belt. Uh, you know, it was like all these legends that we had the ability to train with Leo Zeno and, you know, you know, Marcy Feitosa, all these other guys. Can we train the first time we, we went to Brazil actually, um, and, and this was okay by, by Roberto, but we actually lived really close to Alliance and it was walking distance. And for us to get to Gracie Ball the first time we went would have been like, I don't know, it would have taken us like two hours there and back. And, oh, and, wow. and we didn't know really like how to speak the language. So we were pretty uncomfortable. So we actually ended up training with um, the, the Alliance team uh, because they were right down the street and they were cool with it. And we were getting ready for the worlds and we're like, okay, we're just going to train here if that's cool. And they said, okay, we cleared with Roberto and, and um, so we were exposed to a completely different style there as well. Um, and that was our first world championship. It was in 1999. Uh, Keith and I both competed as purple belts. Um, and yeah, I think Keith lost to Dan- Daniel Moraes, who ended up becoming a, you know, a two or three time world champion at the black belt level. Um, did really well, you know. Um, and then I, um, I, I think lost either in the third round or in the quarterfinals to Pete Um So, yeah, it was, I think he won by advantage or something like that. So it, it was just an amazing experience. It's the intimidation of coming in and hearing the Brazilian fans and just like, it was packed and crazy and intense. And um, yeah, it was, it, it was pretty wild, man. But then coming back, I felt like I immediately, in, in one month, I felt like I had improved three times. I was like three times as good because I, I had new techniques. I, I had experience. Um, I felt more confident and I felt like coming back to, to Boston Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I could kind of help spread the information around a little bit. And from that, I was able to extract some, some knowledge from Brazil and, and hopefully, you know, help others get better. And that would ultimately, uh, you know, help me get better too. So that, that was yeah, a big part I, of my motivation. I think that you guys going to Brazil, up to the level of the academy without a doubt when you guys came back there was all this stuff it was a real good focus on some other stuff to work because it was another time you couldn't just get on the internet and go look yes. stuff up easily and a lot of schools were pretty guarded about what they were putting out there so there were a lot of mm-hmm. tapes out there but they seemed to be very fundamentals oriented and so you would be coming back with stuff that people were doing in tournaments and um I think that hundred percent that raised the level of the, the jiu-jitsu at the academy. Like every time you came back, I could see the difference because I'd train with you every day and you'd come yeah. back and I'd be like, oh crap, he got better. But then we'd yeah. all get better with that because of that. Yes. And it was pretty Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. And I think it's, it, we, we forget about it. And, and um, you know, to the people that I care about, I always try to remind them. It's it, all combat. It, it's an information game. It's an information game. Like a lot of times we get twisted like, oh man, like this guy wins because he's just so explosive. And this guy wins because he's just so strong. All those things help. Absolutely. Especially when you're talking about a lack of technique, strength, speed, flexibility are very important. And that will be a defining factor if the technique is not there. But um, physics is going to be truer than strength, speed, and flexibility. Like if my body is in the proper position, doesn't matter how strong you are. You cannot walk through my body. If I have an arm lock and it's applied absolutely perfect or a choke that's absolutely perfect, your speed and strength and flexibility does not serve you. 
So I, I you know, I, I think that the information of how we're supposed to do things, the technique and all that stuff is super valuable. And I think going to Brazil and learning those things and, and they're pretty guarded, like you said, Nate, about certain things, but um, some people gave us good information. Some people didn't uh, you're a little bit more secretive, but if you train with that person, you could extract information as well. So, so remember uh, the, the, the second time you went, you came back and uh, Pell and I did a private with you and you're like, Oh, well, I was training a lot with this guy named Marcio Cruz and this is what he did. Does. Yeah. Showed us that like the basics of the upside down guard. And That's right. I still do that stuff today. Like awesome. that private lesson has had such a huge impact on jujitsu. <laughs> it's exactly That's what so Nate cool. was talking about. You'd come and bring back techniques and people would get better. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And like I saw, especially you, like you had that same kind of, you know, uh, willingness to invert and, you know, you were fine with, you know, someone putting pressure on you. So you'd invert and start doing that stuff. And I remember you were a pain in the ass after I started teaching you that, like it was so tough to pass your guard um, with that cross grip and inversions. Um, it, it, it really confused a lot of people. I wasn't, uh, you know, the person to really play that game, but I was like, I, I think I know a guy and, and, and you, you did it really well. Pellegrino did it really well as well. But um, I remember just you and your body type, it just, it meshed really well with you. So. Hey, can I, we, I don't remember uh, causing you too much trouble at the time, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Hey, can we talk about Pal for a second? Because I also asked him a question. I said, "Hey, what should I ask Kenny if I talk to him?" Yeah. And this is this is what he said. Ask him about the Hapkido guy that Dojo Storm bust in BJJ, and he had to fight him, and you were the ref or something. I was the ref. <laughs> what oh, you were? Yeah. Yeah. What? What was that? So. Was it so. On Craig Baum's forum, I got to yes. kind of remember this. Um, um, Todd O'Brien started trolling. No, Kenny was the ref. I was taking pictures because I had a flip phone with a camera. That was what it was. Yeah. yeah. Todd O'Brien made an Ashita Kim uh, <laughs> username and he got on the forum and challenged, he, he just basically, this is, so there weren't many jujitsu, there was nowhere to find jujitsu online and Boston BJJ had one of the first forums. And so people from all over the United States, probably even around the world were on this forum talking about jujitsu and we were all just being idiots on there. And so Todd O'Brien made up a username and he's just was in there saying, Oh, Aikido's way better. And Pell Pell won't talk about this part, but he totally bit. And he was like, he got on there and he was so mad. And he's like, you know, Aikido's crap F you and blah, blah, blah. And like, if you come down here, I'll, I'll show you how Aikido works or something like that. Right. And, um, so everybody thought it was kind of real at the time. Like, and I remember Colin Pell being like, dude, that's Todd O'Brien. That's not some guy. And he was like, oh, I thought some guy was all mad about, you know. So we worked it out behind the scenes. Like, why don't we have like a photo? Like, a, we'll do the challenge match and we'll take pictures of it. I mean, again, this is a long time ago. There's no video. So, so Kenny, so the, the best part of this, though, was that we didn't really tell anybody else we were doing this. And this was at the upstairs of Roberto's where there's the main training area. And then you had a small back room that was matted. And we all went in the back room. So Kenny's refing, uh, Pell's ready, right? And, um, and Todd O'Brien walks into the academy with a blonde wig 
a wife beater, <laughs> jeans, and work boots, and just stomps through the academy and walks right to the back door, right? And I didn't really think about this at the time. And so Kenny's in the pictures, like, and I, I forget if it's like, like in the beginning, Pell shoots and he, we had to frame the pictures because the cameras were so yeah, bad. Yeah. And I think he like reverses Pell and starts attacking him. And then did we have Pell pull his hair and then put him it in was a something like or something? I was like in a triangle and, with like his hair. Yeah. And Kenny's like in the back, like, like coaching him through it. But I still remember um, Jacob. You guys remember Jacob? I just remember Jacob yes. opened the door and he like looked in all concerned, like what's going on back oh, yeah. here? <laughs> Cause he had seen the post and thought it was real. And then Roberto called me that night and he's like, what the hell? I heard there's a fight at the Academy. And I'm like, no, Roberto, no, no, it, it, it wasn't real. We just staged it. It was Todd O'Brien. I'm like, I probably should have told you this before we did oh, it. My God. But it became like super famous because we put the pictures up and, I think Pell has been on and told this, but he went to California once and some guy was like, you're the guy, you that that guy. And he's like, so <laughs> embarrassed. Yeah, he was like so embarrassed. He's like, yeah, I didn't want to say it was all made up. So that was the story with that. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. I have that phone somewhere. I wonder if those pictures are still on it. Our, our, our trolling skills were, were way ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. So Kenny, you know, one of the things that I – and this is maybe a comment or discussion more than a question, but when George was asking me about you and I was saying for, for me, it's funny, you know, you talk about like what Pat gave and I think what you gave to, to the Academy a lot was like um, you were someone like everywhere we went, I did go with a lot of tournaments with you and everywhere we went, whether there's jiu-jitsu tournaments or fights, you were always reading like it was Musashi book of five rings, art of war, like all that kind of stuff. But constantly this like striving to marry like technique with strategy. And, and you're one of the first people that I've ever trained with and probably the person that influenced me the most with maybe the, those two concepts, because in the beginning there was this idea of technique, right? That's what we're introduced to with Hoist Gracie fighting in the UFC. Mm. But I had never trained with someone that was so obsessed with the strategic side of, of what they were doing and kind of putting the, the strategy with the technique, which is probably more commonplace now with what you see. But yeah, I think back in the mid nineties, that was really kind of like um, maybe a little ahead of its time. And I, I think that's something that, I don't know if you want to talk about what your thoughts are. I mean, you were just reading and studying. I mean, even like us playing chess before, um, before jujitsu to get the mind kind of prepare that, that strategic side of what we were doing. Yeah. um, You know, listen, I I think that there's correlations between a lot of different things. And I I think that, um, you know, I kind of had it wrong in some ways. Like I think that I almost saw technique and strategy as two separate things, but um, I, I think what I've come to learn over the last, you know, several years is like technique guides your strategy and strategy guides your technique. They're both intertwined. And I think that like, um, I really wanted to pursue the martial arts path really, really badly. And I felt like that was the closest I've been to like a religious experience, you know? And I felt like you have to immerse yourself in that. Like what were the great masters doing? What were the great minds doing? What were the great martial artists doing to, be different and be the best that they could be. So I, I loved researching about that stuff. Um, you know, I think w- when I started MMA, I started 
reading a lot about special operations forces and, you know, different types of operations that went down. And, um, you know, that helped me also get like tougher and stronger up here mentally. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I thought that, um, and I still think that there's so much to learn from, you know, other martial artists and, and fighters and things like that. So I always wanted to, you know, get a little bit of, of a glimpse into how they saw martial arts, how they did it, how they were successful, what kind of failures they had. Um, and yeah, it helped me. I think, um, while I love to compete and stuff like that, I think my, my goal always from day one, I always thought I would be a teacher. So I just had this thirst for knowledge and information and trying to learn from, you know, other, other great masters like Bruce Lee and Musashi. And, you know, um, it, it had a big time impact, you know, talking about guys that are way ahead of their time, you know, like, and I know that Bruce Lee actually learned a lot from Musashi too. So those, those things. And like, I, I, I learned a lot and I still learn a lot. You know, I, I recently reread a bunch of Musashi stuff and I was like, Whoa, like now that I'm a little older and like have experienced, you know, some different martial arts. I'm like, there were so many nuggets there that I didn't even recognize when I was younger. So anyways, yeah, it, it was, it was, super helpful to my career you know if you can get you know if you could glimpse through the eyes of those great masters then it will put you a little bit closer on the path i i think i noticed like so i mean again i was with you a lot especially early before you would compete and i think that that was an edge you had was that it you were so laser focused and I think a lot of the strategy that you had, and like you said, I, it's funny, the special forces stuff you would read, the, all of that would be kind of in your head and that focus before you competed, I always think gave you an edge. I, I mean, I can remember, I can't remember that guy from, you competed against that guy from Henzo's. Oh, yeah, 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 Matt, Matt McTeague. And, and he was yeah, awesome. Yeah, those guys were like, yeah. yeah. And like, I just remember like, and they were physically really gifted, you know, guys. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and, I just remember like it being in that, like right there with you. And like, like they he, he caught you off guard in the beginning and got ahead. And you just like, yes. I, I just remember like watching you dig in and like, you're like, this is the strategy. This is what I'm doing no matter what. And like relentless, relentless, relentless until it just broke the, the more maybe physically gifted person. You know what I mean? And like, I, it's yeah, funny, that yeah, yeah. I always remember that because I remember seeing him come out like and being like, oh shit, this guy looks tough. Yeah, you know, he was jacked. Yeah. yeah. yeah he was and, and good. And they were good and they had a yeah. great team. Yes. And, but it was like the discipline to stay with the strategy, to stay with the technique, not to think, oh crap, this isn't working or um, yeah. I'm getting tired or I'm whatever it is to just like stay focused. And that was like a very early moment where I remember I, that match stuck with me for uh, forever. Like to like, that's yeah. how the smaller guy beats the bigger guy. Right. The technique. Yeah, you know, for sure, for sure. For sure. You know, I, I think, um, you know, that was kind of my, you know, early stages of really understanding the power of strategy and being disciplined in that and understanding your weaknesses and your opponent's weaknesses and your opponent's strengths as well. You have to take in all those things in consideration, your own weaknesses, your own strengths and their strengths and their weaknesses and really, you know, strategize around those things and, and what kind of weapons you bring to the table. And um, I, I think I wasn't, you know, uh, I didn't grow up like, 
hungry or anything like that. You know, I, my, my, my dad was a successful, you know, physician and things like that. I didn't, you know, really need a whole lot of things growing up. Um, so I, I really tried to understand what the warrior mindset was all about because I, I knew nothing about it. Um, you know, so I, I needed to be able to tap into that um, mindset as a martial artist, if I wanted to really be the thing, if I really wanted to be the, be the guy and, and, and live that lifestyle, um, I, I needed to understand it if I wanted to be it. And, you know, that, that definitely helped me a lot. I think it was you that uh, mentioned the book to me, The Unfettered Mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk it's not Mustache, but it's a similar... Uh... It, it's actually, yeah, you know, Taquan Soho was a Buddhist monk uh, who, who supposedly um exchanged letters with musashi at some point but um he you know a, a lot of monks you know either were former warriors or um would train in in some of the combatives and they applied that zen mindset to martial arts and um he has a lot of interesting um information and tidbits on you know the way of the sword and martial arts and what the proper mindset is and all that stuff. And in the book, Musashi by um, A.G. Yoshikawa, um, th there's a, it, it's not a true story uh, per se. There's a lot of truth in it, but it, not all of it is accurate. But Takut Soho plays a big part in um, getting Musashi to stop looking at himself as, you know, this guy with all these physical gifts and start saying, you need to develop your mind. You know, you, you, you have all these gifts and you're very physically powerful, but that doesn't make you any better than you know, the wild beast, you know, how can you train your mind to elevate yourself past everything else? And, you know, it, 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 it's just a really interesting story on how he kind of guides Musashi down this path. And he has this influence throughout Musashi's life and, and getting him to realize that, um, you know, our, our mind is the most powerful thing that we possess, that that's what differentiates us ourselves from, from the physical beast, you know. Is that where the Meraki, um, motto like be present is that kind of where it comes from yeah definitely um i think i that that was kind of a little bit later in my life i realized that the importance of being present and bringing your full self to an activity um you know i i still you know i i think we are trying to be as aware as possible when we're grappling and things like that. But sometimes we uh, grapple with distracted minds. I'd say not uh, sometimes, a lot of times we, we grapple with distracted minds like, Oh man, he grabbed me with this grip or, Oh man, he's doing this or how much time is on the clock or man, I had a rough day at work today or, Oh, I'm tired. None of those things can allow you to, to be your best self. If you're not focused exactly on the moment, on everything that is, if you're not feeling what's going on in jiu-jitsu, you're not really doing jiu-jitsu. You're not really doing grappling. So I think um, <clears throat> that, that part helped me kind of disconnect uh, the mind in a lot of ways, or at least my thought from, from the process. And, and it's not always a perfect process. Of course, you know, I, I get caught in that too, but um I, that was kind of the message I was trying to portray is, you know, lead with your passion. Meraki is a Greek word for doing something with your soul, doing something with, with, with love. Um, and that's, what's guided me to this point. That's why I still train. Uh, I, I, I freaking love it. And, um, now how can I disconnect the thought, uh, and just kind of let my body just do what I'm supposed to be doing and, and kind of, there is no face, there is no body. It's just me expressing my jujitsu 
uh, as authentically as I can. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, we there's a while ago where Jocko came out and and spoke. Uh, he came into Arlington and and spoke, and he oh, talked cool. and, but he talked the whole time about like discipline being everything. And I was thinking like, like I'm not the most disciplined person, but I'm very passionate about jujitsu. Like like what it means for me and what it feels for me is what drives me and the discipline I might have with jujitsu comes from the passion. Like if I didn't love this, I wouldn't do the work that it takes to be good at it. And it's funny. You're just talking about like, like talking about that because I don't think I've ever really talked about this because it's something I just was internally thinking where I was like, huh, discipline on its own, like it to get up and do a million pushups or do everything at 4am for no reason for me, there's, I I wouldn't do it, but I'm going to eat better and I'm going to do, I'm going to work out and I'm going to do the things because I love doing jujitsu and I want to continue to do it. And it doesn't, I mean, obviously I'm not the biggest guy here. Um, <laughs> I'm not working out to get huge. I just want to stay healthy and, and yes. stay on the mat because I love training, you know? And I think that for me, passion drives, drives everything in this, you know, With, without a doubt. I think that's the key. You know, it's, if you go back to the cheesy thing of, you know, the cliche, uh, you know, um, love love is everything or you know love is what life is all about it, it really is you know we, we always associate that with you know relationships and that's of course important as well you know no doubt about it but it's just like anything else you know like for those of you guys that have kids or whatever nate i know you know it's like there's some tough times you know there's some difficult challenging times um you know you don't just walk away from it uh, even in some cases you think about it you're like, oh, this is too difficult i'm sure um it's uh it, you do it because you love it you do yeah. it because you love your kid. And it's the same thing with jujitsu, man. Like everyone thinks like, Oh man, like you were a natural at it. I'm like, do you guys have any idea how many times I was underneath Pat Barbieri's sweaty gi and how many times he clock choked me and how many times I've failed in front of millions of people and how many times I've, you know, gotten beat up in training or how many times, you know, okay. Yeah, cool. But now it's like, Oh, you, you don't even use any of like your, everything you do is effortless. It's so easy for you. Like, Oh, like, yeah, it, I had I had to struggle really, 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 really hard, you know. And um, but the only reason I did that is not because of like, it's not because I wanted to be better than everybody. It's not because like I'm disciplined per se. It's because I freaking loved it so much that I wanted to be disciplined to do it. You know, it was like, yeah. Yeah. there's not one day that I don't think passionately about jujitsu, no matter how tough it is. Some days I go back and like, ah, oh, man. But then I remember, I remind myself, this is my path. This is my journey. It's different than everybody else's. Now I just feel like after 24 years or so of training that things are just, I don't know, for whatever reason, this is just really recently that I kind of put together, um, um, you know, my, my whole thoughts on jiu-jitsu and, and, and how it's best to approach it. Uh, that I really feel like I understand what I'm doing, like truly understand. And, and I, you know, I talked about this before, but it's, we can know a lot about something and not understand it. And, and I think I'm just kind of getting to that point where I'm like, okay, like everything kind of makes sense. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm the best uh, in the world by any means, but it just means that I can figure out a lot of the things that I'm doing right and wrong and, and why it works. I think that uh, that showed itself a lot when you transitioned into an MMA career. I always loved watching your fights. You know, obviously um, you were a friend and an instructor. I probably, no, I definitely took more classes with you than I did with Roberto. 
you know, I learned tremendously from, from both of you, of course, but watching you go out there and kind of, cause it was all about jujitsu in the early days. It was about proving jujitsu, right? So yeah, yeah. you go into the cage and do that, you know, you look at your record, you were 14 and six with 12 finishes, 12 submissions, um, a lot by rear naked choke. You know what I mean? That, that, that love for jujitsu showed up and certainly the warrior spirit. What, what drove that transition into MMA? Was that always something that you knew you were going to do or point <laughs> said it's time to go to the next level and test myself in a different way? I think in a weird way, I kind of knew that I would do it. Um, I felt like, and this was just my own personal thing. I don't believe this to be true. I did, this is just for me. I was like, do I really know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu if I haven't utilized it against another person who's trying to hurt me? And then it became, do I really know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu if there's another martial artist out there that's trying to hurt me? Like, okay, this is a different thing. And my intention, honestly, was like have one or two fights, call it a career. Like I, I experienced that. Cool. The problem was the, thing, the very thing that led me into, you know, um, to try mixed martial arts was the thing that kept kind of pulling me more and more and more. And then it became more about the purity of martial arts. And it, it was a thing called fear. And I was, you know really kind of anxious as a kid i had a lot of anxiety like i still don't really like going into big crowds and things like that but like i had a lot of fear as a kid um believe it or not you know keith was kind of like had this like courageous thing about him all the time he was like you know i would kind of like fold in keith would kind of you know kind of puff his chest out and um i i just didn't know how to deal with that I'm like man if someone wanted to fight me like what would i do and i just felt like man, I need to, I need to, I need to run towards this. I can't run away from it. And I felt that same thing. Like when I saw John Frankel fight, um, uh, his MMA fight, I think it was against Nuri Shakur. Um, I, one thing I was like, man, how would I, how would I react in that situation? I don't know how I would. And number two, um, it was like what John got cut or something like that, Nate. Right. And they like stopped the fight or something like that. And that really bothered me because I, I didn't want, you know, I kind of wanted to like, I, I considered John a mentor and I wanted to go out there and like beat that guy that like, you know, hurt John or whatever, or cut him or something. And, um, I think it ended up being a draw or whatever. No, they DQ'd Nuri. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. It was a DQ. John had okay. dominated the fight and yes. then they stood up at the end and, and I don't, just one little cut. I think he, he kind of shot yeah, and Nuri threw a knee. It didn't even seem like, but it, it hit John's nose and they just, de and it yeah. cut him and they just DQ'd it. But I remember John was like, let's just keep fighting. And they're like, no. Yeah. You got to yeah. go. Okay. That's what, that's what happened. So, but yeah, Nuri yeah. was talking crap the next day a little bit. Yes. And yes. I love Nuri, but, but, yeah. but he was talking crap the next day. And I remember right. you were so mad and you're like, I'm going to fight him. Like I'm going to fight Nuri. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And that was like, I was so upset. Like, and, um, you know, I, he ended up being my first fight and I ended up beating him thankfully. And, um, yeah, but, it was like I won, but I, especially in a fight against Nuri, like there was so much energy that I didn't know how to deal with. I felt like there was so much on my chest and I just couldn't, I wasn't comfortable. I may have won and maybe it looked easy, maybe it didn't, but it was like, man, it was like this stressful situation and I wanted to know how to approach a fight with it not being stressful or scary anymore. And I knew that I could get there, but I also knew it would take a lot of training and a lot of like understanding and um, over time I would, I started to get rid of that fear. And then again, when I fought Diego Sanchez, 
on the Ultimate Fighter finale, it creeped up on me again. And it was like, whoa. Not only did I feel fear, like a crazy amount of fear, but it froze me. Where, hey, maybe Diego would have won. He had a ton more experience than I did, but it shouldn't have gone down like that. I didn't even get a chance to show my skills because I beat myself. I was so afraid and so scared of doing anything because my focus was not on what I was supposed to do, not what was in front of me, but it was on the contract and the pressure and mm. stupid things that I couldn't control. And I was like, man, Kenny, you got some more mind training to do and you have some more physical training to do and technical training to do and spiritual training to do. And, you know, I think in a way, Jay, I think that walking, whether we realize it or not, and obviously it's not quite the same today, but walking the warrior's path and walking the, the path of a martial artist, you are, you're always walking the fine line of life on one side and death on the other side. You know, there was a time where the majority of people died via murdered, like via murdering. Like, like most, most people like were attacked by a rival village or if you had certain things that another person wanted, they would just go and take it and you either had to fight to defend yourself or not. Um, it was a, a much different situation way back in the day. And I think that's kind of in our blood in some way, shape or form. We are here because our ancestors ancestors survived some of those things. Um, and, you know, whether you, whether, you, whether it's real or not, when you walk into an octagon, when you walk into a cage and you see another guy in front of you who can hurt you, th there is a possibility that you can die. There is a possibility that you can die. It, it, it's not often, it's very, very rare. But it could happen. And I think that kind of gets into your mindset a little bit. Um, and you, you, I think from walking that path, you kind of start to see other things outside of just the martial arts skill. It ends up being this philosophy or, or, or this kind of ethos that you follow over time. Um, and you realize the importance of every day and every second and every minute and the value of time and, you know, it, 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 there's nothing more motivating than than life and death or the fact that you could be badly injured by that guy you know who you might fight in a month or two and that's it, it you know we look you know some people might look at kenny Florian and say oh like you know he had you look at the you, you know look at the record watch the fights do all those things but you had a pretty unique ufc career in that in that facet you know you talk about controlling your fear you fought in four different weight classes in the ufc some of the greatest fighters that have ever gotten that cage, you know, talk about people like Gomi or Dean Thomas, uh, Mishima, Roger Huerta, and then, you know, your three fights for the, for the championships, no slouches, no cream puffs, Sean Shirk, BJ Penn, Jose Aldo, like <laughs> UFC hall of fame type people, all, you know, a lot of different weight classes. Uh, you know, that th th this warrior mentality you're talking about, all you have to do is really take a closer look at your career. And you see that you see that you never back down from a challenge and learned from every fight and came back a better Kenny Florian than you were six months ago. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the thing I was most proud of is that I, I win or lose, I always came back better and, and was able to pick myself up and not, you know, be so depressed about my performances or whatever. But I think again, my, my initial, um, you know, kind of, uh, I guess want with martial arts was to be an instructor, to be a teacher. And, I always, you know, thought that Keith would be the fighter and I would be the teacher, but how can I, how can I be a teacher? How can I be the best possible teacher if I'm not out there doing it and experiencing what, what, um, what 
fighters are experiencing. You know, I, I think that like for me, I, I, I had to experience that to, to be the best teacher that I could possibly be. You know, that, that's what I want. Okay. The universe is like, okay, you want to do that? Cool. We're going to show you exactly what it's like for better or worse. We're going to give you all these lessons and here you go. Take, take what you can from it. And I think, you know, I, and that's why looking back, like I don't have any regrets. I, I wish I, you know, did things differently and I wish I could have been, you know, could have had a better record and, and done some things, you know, to get better results. But, um, you know, I'm, I don't think I would have experienced what, have I, what I would have experienced if, um, you know, I, I did some of those things. I, I learned a, a ton and, you know, just that cliche thing, our, 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 our best teacher is our last failure. And I always tried to learn from those failures and, and improve the best of my ability. And now I feel like I can, you know, pass on a lot of my mistakes, the mistakes that I made or the improvements that I've made onto, you know, my students and, and the people I care about. Let me just say, you're a huge sulker when you lost, so don't. I was, I know. It didn't dude, like, matter if it was a UFC title fight or, or some crappy grappling match. tournament. Yeah, Kenny, I've never known anyone to be as disappointed as Kenny when he I, was. I, I was, and that, that's true. I, I was, I was super, um, super depressed after a fight. Really mopey. I wouldn't really talk. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, and sometimes when I won too, but mostly because I lost, I wouldn't sleep. I would just like run through that fight in my head over and over and over and over again. And I wasn't the, the nicest person to be around after a loss. And not necessarily like I was mean necessarily, but I was just really down on myself. Um, I, I took it with a lot of shame. So it was tough, but eventually, you know, I had to pick myself up and be like, all right, but you kept getting in. Do? You yeah, kept no, getting I was, in. exactly. I was like, what do I need to do to get this better? That, that's the thing at the end of the day, it's like, you know, um, your ego needs to get pushed aside. It's like, okay, man, you know, first let's ask yourself the real question. Did you do everything possible? You know, did you, did you really do everything possible? And you end up finding that every single time you could do a little bit more. And, and I ended up training more and more and more and learning more and more and more. And, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting, interesting experience every fight. You know, it's a, one of those things where when we came up, you were just a kid doing jujitsu that liked doing jujitsu. And it, it's been good for me to see that. And I'm sure so many gyms with people in there, like if you get to see this experience, but I remember like, I, I, I think I was talking about this before, but you went to California for some tournament and I couldn't go. And it might've been, I forget who was in there, but this is the time where it's all the people in the magazines, the grappling magazine. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, I remember being like, Oh, you're going to get smoked. You know, and you were like, whatever, like I'm going out. I'm like, they're way bigger than you. They're all of these men, everyone in there, it's an invitational tournament. And you called me right after. I'm like, how'd it go? And you're like, I won. And I was like, no, really, what, how'd it go? You're like, no, oh, I won the tournament. And you were so mad, you're like, you'd be so much fucking better. You just started yelling at me. If you believe in your jujitsu, just because these guys are in magazines doesn't mean a thing. They're just some crappy guy training on crappy mats somewhere else. And it doesn't matter. And I always remembered that that always stuck with me. Like that famous person, some crappy guy training on mats like everybody else. And this is, these grappling tournaments were before you were well known, even in the grappling world, which you got known for then, right? Like I remember that yeah. invitational tournament, you being in there, you were probably the, probably the low seed on that. They did not expect yeah, yeah. to win that. Yes. And, um, but then like, 
Yeah, I think of that. I don't, I don't want to say names, but I think of um, you tapping a certain person at Boston BJJ and they were the alpha, not the alpha at the place, but one of them at the time. And they got up and punched a hole in the wall and uh, Pat called us in the office. And I'm like, I'm not a part of this fight. I don't know why I'm here. He's like, you sit here and you, you, and he's like, think, solve it right now. And he's like, he's trying to break my arm. And you were like, you've been tapping me for years. Like, what's the problem? Just cause I catch you, you got to get up. And I remember I had just drywalled. I took a week off of work and drywalled the whole place with Roberto. And he got up and he was going to punch right where the screws were. And he moved over so he could punch through the drywall. I was so mad at him for that. I won't say any names, but I don't think that guy trains anymore. Oh, but that's I, so but funny. Like, what, what would he think if it was not just some kid started getting better than him, a lower belt starting to tap him and he's not the alpha anymore. Yeah. And that's future UFC fighter, Kenny Florian tapping him. But at the time, it's just some kid, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That, you know, that happens everywhere. It's everyone's just some crappy kid until they're maybe where you are. Maybe not, but, I, but it's no, an for important sure. mindset to have. You know, you always had that mindset. Absolutely. I think, you know, and it got stronger over time. Like Keith definitely had that mindset as well. He, he would remind me too. Like I remember when we were in Brazil and he's like, He's like, Kenny, he's like, why are you rolling like a bitch? Basically, he's like, this isn't how you roll. Like, you're being nice. Like, why are you letting them, like, initiate? He's like, dude, he's like, go for it. You know, like, what are you doing? And I just, like, it just kind of reminded me. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I, I didn't want to. First, I was like, I don't want to be disrespectful. Like, so I'm just going to let them do this. He's like, dude, come on. Like, just train. So he'd have to remind me, too. But I think, like, Star Wars, uh, I think, had a big impact on me when I was coming up a lot. And, um you know, I remember, what is it, Luke Skywalker turning to, to, to Yoda and saying, I can't, or I, I don't believe. And Yoda said, you know, this is why you fail. And, uh, you know, and there's so many great lessons in that of like, you know, learning the way of the force. And you're like, this is just like, these are life lessons that they're just giving out like to people that if you believe it, it it's, it, it's real. And I think, it's basically the, the, the path of a martial artist, you know, the, the way of the Jedi, you know, and I think that having an impact kind of like really inspired me. You know, I think we all kind of, whether we follow the Bible or, you know, a book that we love or a movie that we love, you know, that there's a certain mythology there yeah. that we follow that helps guide us throughout our life, whether we re you know realize it or not. And I think something silly like star Wars had a, had a big impact on me and like, believing, believing in, in yourself and like, you're, you're special too. Why don't you deserve to be great? You know? So you're saying Star Wars is the greatest martial arts movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> this is what comes up on this podcast all the time. So. That, that is going to be a very, that's a hot debate right there. Yeah. I like that. That's pretty good. I, that's something that always stuck with me, right? Why not me when you go into a fight? Yeah. Right. Why not well, he, so Kenny was the one, oh, man, that was a blue belt or something. And you pulled me aside because a bunch of people had lost that day. Mm. They're like, look, you, you know, fuck being afraid to lose. Like you can't be afraid to win. Like it's easy to go sit with those guys and like, Oh, I also lost like go out and win your matches and be the guy that's not afraid to be the one that was different from the other people that like put it on the line and did your best. Believe you can win before you even go in there. I've never forgot that you told me that. That's awesome. And I've repeated it a million times and I, and I take all the credit for it, of course, but <laughs> it was, it was an amazing early lesson on how to go and compete and, and put yourself in a mindset where you're not afraid to win, no matter what the, the circumstances are. 
it, it's so subtle, but um, it, it's so powerful. And, and I literally just had this conversation with one of our students and at Meraki and it was such a talented kid that he, he really could be special. And, but his tech, because his technique is so good, but I reminded him that that doesn't mean shit that you have to cultivate your mind as well. And I, I saw him compete a little while ago and I was just kind of, you know, now I, I don't, I didn't really hold back then, but I don't hold back now at all. Some people get, you know, thrown off by it, but I, I'm doing it because I care about them. I want to see them do well. So I, I try to be super real because I don't want to not say something and then be like, man, I should have told that guy something, you know, I just want to, if they, if they take it as something that's offensive, that's on them. I, I want to do it and just be very clear with them. And I told them, you know, if you go out there and you compete like you did, you did that because if you lost, you would like to tell yourself that you didn't give it a hundred percent. So now you feel better about yourself because you didn't give a hundred percent. And now you constantly have that, that excuse built in. And we do that in a lot of different ways. What's wrong with giving a hundred percent doesn't mean like trying to hurt someone or trying to beat someone, but what is wrong? with putting it all on the line and going, I'm going to give everything I got. And if I don't get the win, I'm okay with that. It just means I have more training to do. Um, but we don't want that. We want our built-in excuses to make ourselves feel good. Well, well man, but if I went hard, like I would have, I'm telling you, I would have beat him. So you can, you know, so it, it's a different mentality. And then, you know, and I did that too. There were times when I, I did that in certain situations, you know, but I think when you give it your all, yeah, you're upset that you lost, but at the end of the day, you can look at yourself in the mirror and go, at least I gave it my best. I tried hard. I didn't have that mentality of like, eh, I'm going to do it a little bit. It, it's, it's you do or you don't. It's hey, an amazing psychological strategy there, like to develop yourself to, to become that way beyond just the technical lessons that you learn in jujitsu. That's like, that's taking it. That's how you take it to the whole new level. Man, I know we're kind of pushing you on time, so uh, I got some. I got I got some more time. Actually, I got some more time. Nice, nice. Yeah. Hey, I got to ask you a question that Nate brought up. Do khaki geese, khaki geese, really smell or feel like they have hair fur on the inside of them? <laughs> I believe I said it felt like it had bear fur on the that's, inside. That's what I said. So, the khaki geese so, so. feel like khaki <laughs> geese. That was. I was so excited. It was so funny. I remember being so excited that I had my first sponsor, right? Because like, if you're in the jiu-jitsu community, if you, if you got sponsored, like you made it like that, you like, that was like your first, like people, you know, like you did it, like you got a sponsor. Um, and Kagi was the first gi company that actually sent me gis for free. And that's all they did. They sent me patches and a gi. And I was like, yes, on top of the world, I made it. Uh, now it's like, you know, whatever, any, any geese, gee company will probably send you some geese now, but back in the day it was extremely hard. I remember writing, <laughs> I remember writing letters to Howard combat kimonos and be like, Hey, this is my resume. My name is Kenny Florian. If you could please send me some geese, I'd love to represent your team. And Howard, you know, he didn't know who I was, but he was like, no, you're just a blue belt and we don't really care or a purple belt, whatever it is. Like you're on the East coast scene. We're on the West coast nothing you do really matters. Essentially, you know, he didn't, he wasn't that harsh, but basically he's like, we're not interested. No, thanks. And like the other companies that I hit up, 
like either didn't respond or like, nah, we're good. Thanks. <laughs> so there was a little was just, East coast, West coast rivalry back then. I mean, a it was, big yeah. East, I don't think it's like that now, but back then yeah. that was the thing. East coast, West coast jujitsu. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. We, we were kind of, we, we always felt like, you know, because we're in the East coast, like mentally we were like tougher and like, you know, grinders and Cali, they had all this access to all these great gyms and stuff like that. And they didn't appreciate it. Um, so, you know, anytime we, we had the, you know, the ability to compete against them or, you know, to do, we were always trying to prove ourselves. Right. So like, um, that, that was, those were cool times. What do Kenny, you remember? Kenny, what do you well, remember? George, wait, Kenny, Kenny went on that forum right when Kagi sponsored him and put this post up about how great they were and that it felt like bear fur on the inside of the knees. <laughs> That's where that came from. So. Exactly. I posted, I remember posting and you're like bear fur? Really? Yeah. Or like, like cool, bear man. fur like, when you're sweating. <laughs> of course, Nate was there to bring me right back down to reality. Yeah. And you're also one of the, um, the first, uh, guys that bear sponsored also, right? Like you were. Yes. Yeah. I was sponsored by a company that nobody knew about. Show your role. S Y R. They were, um, they were sending me geese that, you know, people are like, those look funny. Those aren't Brazilian. You know, I don't know about those geese. Um, and he would actually to, to make some extra money and to support me through my training camps, he would make a signature Ken flow, um, show your old t-shirt. They all came, there was always a different color or a different design every single time. Uh, and <laughs> there it is. And they were amazing, dude. They did such a good job and they were really ahead of their time as far as like graphic design, and all that stuff. So I would take those and I would sell those before my fights and that would generate money for me, like to provide, you know, uh, money for my equipment, for my travel, for my training, all that stuff, my coaches. So I would utilize that money all the time and show your role was doing this every single camp. And this is when no one knew who they were. And now it's crazy. They're literally the biggest and most popular, uh, geek company in the world. And, you know, John Mayer was wearing a show your role the other day. And you see all these years, like, how did it go from bear being like, yeah, man, I'll say, you know, I'll try to get it to you before the fight, but I don't know, you know, we're kind of busy right now, man, but I'll say, you know, I'll say some stuff or like, Ken Flo, here's a geek. Now they're just like uh, uh, amazing what they've done and uh, what, what they've done for the jiu-jitsu community. And, and they're just a, a huge powerhouse that, again, people don't realize all the struggles that they had to go to, what they were doing in the early stages of, of um, jiu-jitsu. And, and, and Nate, maybe you agree with this, but like, Jiu-Jitsu back in the day, if you were you know trying to get sponsored, it kind of felt like skateboarding back in the day of like, yeah, you know, yeah, it, totally. it, it was trying to get to that level. It, it kind of like, you totally. knew what you were doing and it felt cool, but no one else knew. So that felt even cooler, <laughs> but you, you also wanted to break through and kind of make some money somehow or find a way to make money. And yeah. So I think, weren't you the first sponsored athlete for Sprawl too? Yes, I was actually. Pretty good. So yeah, Pretty good, good little, uh. I know it was wild because everyone back in the day would wear like speedos or like spandex for the most part. And I went out there and competed with board shorts against actually, were you there for Scott Schultz when I competed against Scott Schultz? Yeah. My first Nogi tournament, it was in New York. Um, and it was the first time I had competed without the gi uh, since joining Boston Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I, uh, I was a brown belt at the time and I had like a cutoff t-shirt and board shorts. And this guy, Steve, Steve Marino, I believe from, from sprawl saw that match. And he's like, 
wait a sec, maybe we could create board shorts for grappling. And he hit me up and he's like, Hey, we're starting this new company. I saw you wear board shorts. You know, would you want to wear our shorts? And that's kind of how that started. So yeah. You Crazy. ripped the sleeves off your shirt for that, didn't you? Yeah. Cause you yeah, don't want anyone it, grabbing them. Well, yeah. And I, I didn't want it to like soak up his sweat yeah. or whatever. And like, so I didn't want it to get caught in and his feet. If, if I remember, as if I remember, you came out to Baba O'Reilly. You walked out yes. with that one, but you were yeah, concerned. Dude, you amazing it, memory. You were concerned that it was gonna hit the point where it's like, "Don't cry, don't say." You're yeah, like, yeah. You <laughs> want them to stop it before that because it's real badass, and then it slows down. And I always thought that is when the UFC now uses that in the beginning. Isn't that funny? It was before yeah. then, dude. It's so crazy. Look at Kenny's just ahead of his time. Way right? ahead, way ahead of my <laughs> trailblazer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, good times, man. So everybody talks about the Red Room. Everybody's always talking about it. What are your memories of the Red Room? Oh, man. So the Red Room was this private space that was ultimately built uh, by Roberto off of the main training room. So we had this huge mat at Boston Brazil, or it seems huge in my mind. It was pretty big for the time. And then another little section of um, another little section was built by Roberto and Pat, and that other little section was, was kind of, I think it was originally developed for like private lessons. I think uh, it was something like that you could do on the side while the classes were going on. Well, ultimately became like Pat's little torture room where, you know, if you got the invite from Pat, essentially you were allowed to train with him. And you were also given the right of getting your ass kicked by him uh, in both nogi and mixed martial arts. So any, any fighters that would come through, Pat would be training them in there. And it became this kind of like room where a lot of the, the tough guys were in there training. So you, you could go in there and get, you know, while the, the, the regular class was going on, you could be training no gi or you'd be training, you know, um, MMA style jujitsu um, back there with, with Pat and, and the other guys that decided to meet. So we'd meet either in there early or while the classes were going on. And it was just kind of a way of not being distracting to the other people and, and kind of doing our own little thing. And it was, it was amazing. There was some, some sick training sessions in there. Matt Fletcher was in there a lot. He was a really good wrestler and we did a lot of wall, wall wrestling over there. And um, Pat would, you know, put us in different scenarios and um, yeah, you know, Nate and my brother and, you know, um, we, we spent a lot of time training in there and beating, beating each other up. You know, it's funny, you know what I remember in the red room, right? Right. Just with you sitting here, we started doing those two on one drills. Do you remember yes. that? Yes. And like you had to go against two people and that you would win if you got out of the red room and you started on the far side from the door. And I remember like, like, okay, like, how am I going to use jujitsu against two people? And I always remember when it was, Ken, and I just got like, it was you and your brother, like you and Keith just like swarmed me, overwhelmed me. But yeah. Kenny's strategy with that, he, I don't know if it was me or Keith, but you just beelined as hard as you could to like check someone. And then like, whoever it was, if it was me or him, we were like kind of backed off like this. And then you got out before that. I'm like, that's way better than trying to like, use <laughs> like, why didn't I think of that? But I remember doing that in there and like that red room was so sweaty and it was slippery yeah. and like, just, it was awesome training in there. It really was. And that's the other thing. It was, it was like this canvas. It was this red canvas, of course. And they had the, you know, padded walls and stuff like that. And um, it, 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 as soon as it got slippery, it was just like the main, the, the main training room. But as soon as it got slippery, like doing any kind of stand up or wrestling was like your ankles and knees and your toes, like just 
make sure you're you're you're, you're warmed up because uh, you were going to slip at some point. It, it was well, but it kind of made it real. Like you, you, you that became a, a, an opponent as well. So you kind of had to deal with some of the environmental factors, and it was also a good reminder of like you know on on a, on a combatives level of how how quickly your martial arts skills changes based on the environment. And that was kind of our experimentation room. Smaller room, two people, three people, wall, no wall, um, you know, corners of a room as opposed to being circular or open space where you can get out of there. You know, everything changes based on your environment. How many people are around? You know, are there bottles on the ground? Are you on pavement? Are you on a mat? Are you, you know, it, it's just, it was kind of a little reminder in there that like, Things change. Things change. It's not always like this big, safe, open room of training. I, I remember in that room getting pushed against the wall and going, hold on, let me get off the wall. And Pat pushing me into the corner and goes, there's walls in real life. There's walls in real life. And he's hitting me. There's walls in real life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So do you still do the Royal Rumble at Meraki? Oh man, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. I, <laughs> I don't. I, I actually, I've, I've thought about it. I, we have some excited students at times, so I, I, I'd be a little bit hesitant in doing that. But I, I definitely want to bring it back. I think if I had the like the right crew that I could trust in there, I, I would love to do it. But that was a classic. I remember you, you, you sons of bitches would. I'd be the, I'm the smallest guy in the room and you guys would go after me first. Like, let's take out Florian first. <laughs> you guys would, you guys would take me down and Nate would be like, all right, pin him down and grab him. And then like, then you guys would be trying to leg lock like both legs. And I'd be like, what the hell? And, uh, <laughs> ultimately you guys would, you know, get, Listen. if I couldn't get away, get someone first, you yeah. guys would end up pinning me down and like tapping with like a freaking footlock or something, you know? Jay brought this up the other week, but this is your own fault because he's right. You, I was on the other team from you all the time and <laughs> you would run around and footlock everyone real fast yeah. when with people. Like and five so, people in the first 30 seconds. So he's we, out, he's out. He's yeah, so the strategy, I remember we went back, we got our butts kicked and we went back and we're like, everyone beeline for Kenny and let's get him out first. And then... We'll like, even if a few of you get tapped on that, once he's gone, we'll come back and fix it. And so then the next time we went, you had everyone in front of you and you in the back. Bastard. Coward. You had to to adjust. I remember remember it was so much fun because, uh, you know, in the beginning, in the beginning, you know, like we were still trying to figure out like what's going on. And I would like, kind of like hide in the background like you couldn't really see me so like my head would be lower than everybody and I would just go in there and start sniping people on <laughs> left and right so in like the first 30 seconds you guys would always already be down like five six guys and yeah. then it was <laughs> we would just swear you guys but the day you figured that out I was like damn it I knew it was only a matter of time <laughs> you guys like wait a sec just take Florian out of there and then he's done like, <laughs> it was it was <laughs> It was brutal if you were me because I'd always want someone in my guard and I got these two little stick legs <laughs> in the air and Kenny would just grab one and I'd be like, and the ankle lock was so savage too. It was like that, that low calf lock and I'd be like, oh, it was so brutal. That's hilarious, dude. <laughs> It's so funny. Good thing you people got hurt every time we did that, though. They were always yeah, I know. hurt. I know. <laughs> Worth it. I, I was afraid I was going to get hurt because I wouldn't like tapping to like someone doing a footlock on me being pinned. 
So it was like always this like crapshoot of injuries. Yeah. <laughs> Do you um, remember the nickname, the Crippler? <laughs> the the Crippler. Was it was it Nate who gave me that that nickname? Someone gave it to me. I forget. Yes, it was me. Yeah. Because Kenny was hurting so many people that that I had to shame him to try to make him not hurt people. And Kenny didn't roll in a dangerous way, but when he was getting ready for a tournament, and honestly, this was good for my jujitsu. Yeah. If you were in an arm lock, you had to tap. There was no like he he wasn't being mean, but he was going at speed to compete. So I started shaming him. But do, do, do you remember that you broke that guy's arm and he had a cast and he was such a big fan of yours? He's like, it was, and he came I, back and Kenny broke his arm again. Yeah. <laughs> him the cripple. It was crazy. Well, yeah, no, that that's how it started. Yeah, this guy was massive, but he was he was really big and he was like a karate black belt. Like like his dad was a black belt in karate. He was a black belt. So he was all about it. And nice guy, but he went hard and I was way smaller than him. And I remember he like used to bridge me off all the time. Like I'd be in side control and he'd just bridge me off and get back on top. So I remember I was researching, <laughs> I was watching, uh, I was reading a, a judo book. And in that book, it was like, uh, it was this arm lock where basically you'd pin and go down this yeah. way. So they'd push, they'd go, kind of go belly down and get an arm lock that way. So I would, I utilized, you know, my momentum. So I went, boom, and I switched this way. And he pushed with so much force. And I like, I like lost my balance and basically cracked his elbow and it, it sound it didn't crack. It sounded like dry spaghetti. It was like, oh. and it was so horrifying. Where I was like, "Oh, I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. Are you okay?" And he was like, oh, "I think, I think my arm's broken. I think my arm's broken." And yeah, we didn't see Joe for a little while. Uh, and then he came back, and I think I don't I think I broke his arm the second time. He I think broke I hurt his, his arm, arm again. He I, did, I know I did. Arm barred really? him from the guard the next time, and hyper. Oh my god! Him. He did kind of go hard, but you know what's funny? Yeah. I I I remember you practicing that arm lock, and you're like, "Come here, let me." I have this thing I'm working, and in drilling, even I'm like, "Oh shit!" Like stop, like like goes on fast, and yeah, I, I still know. do that to this day every once in a while because people who like frame really hard. And um, yeah, they don't they don't really like it now. Now, now it, it is a da- it is a dangerous one for sure, but uh, it works at least when it works. works. <laughs> like that. yeah, they don't really like it. <laughs> yeah, they don't really like it. Uh, man, crazy, crazy! All these stories you got. You know, it's it's wild. All the different training partners that we had over the years, and all the different you know experience that we have, like. The, these lessons that you forget that you have, like every single person, whether you're beating them or you're getting beat serves as teachers, like every single person, like, you know, whether it's understanding like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Or that's too dangerous. Or that works. That doesn't work. Or that needs adjustment. Or, you know, you, you forget about that technique and then it comes back again. Or, you know, it's, it, it's fascinating just kind of seeing the, the martial arts journey and how it ebbs and flows and, there's value in training really with, with everybody. You know, we had Mike Brown came on, you know, the thing you did with us to the fight. Yeah. 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 Mike came on on Monday and did it. And he said his, he goes, you know, you're a mosaic of every person you train with your coaches, your training partners, but now your students. And, and he, the fight he broke down and he goes, 
he 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 dropped the guy with a knee on the cage. He goes, Kenny Florian showed me that. And he goes, oh, really? he goes, I, I came in to help him for Diego. And he goes, knee to the leg, knee to the body. And he goes like, and he's like, and I remember being like, oh, that really sucks when he did that. And he's like, I didn't even, he's like, it wasn't something I trained with for the fight, but I had him on the cage and I couldn't take him down. He's like, oh, I remember when Kenny was doing this. So he goes, knee to the, knee to the uh, leg and knee to the ribs. And he dropped, the guy just dropped when he did it. Wow. Oh, that's like, so funny. That's and he's so just cool. like, yeah, that was like something. He's like, it wasn't something I ever like fully thought of, except that it sucked when he did it to me. And he's like, but that's like, that's MMA. That's martial arts. You're pulling something in from everybody, right? Yes. And and Mike, man, Mike was such a beast back in the day. I remember like his jujitsu was really good. I remember it really like throwing me for a loop of how good his, his control was and his jujitsu yeah. and his wrestling. I remember bringing him out and he was just a pain in the ass to deal with back in the day, man. But um, it's great to see him do what he's been doing. And he's now one of the best coaches in the world. And, you know, from a small state in Maine where they didn't really have a whole lot of, you know, uh, martial artists over there to see what he's accomplished. It's, it's pretty cool, man. I think that a lot of people, you know, you, you give credit to a lot of people that you train with and your training partners and your students. And, but I think you've had a, a, a pretty substantial impact on, on a lot of people. I mean, just, uh, you know, that, that seminar you did with us, you know, everyone now, well, not right now because we can't train, but, uh, their X chokes from the top position have gotten so good because of establishing oh, that yeah. grip and using that forearm. Everyone is collar dragging from the butterfly right now. And like, <laughs> That's awesome. You can't rip a 110 pound girl face first in the mat. <laughs> you said you got to really want to put some, and I'm like, just easy, easy. But it's, it's an impact. Thanks, Kitty. But it's special, you know what I mean? When you have that much impact on people, um, you know, back in the day, whether it was Boston Brazilian or whether it was people you had never met before and you're doing seminars with or people that are, are fans of your fighting, I think um, you've really had an incredible impact. And I think it's unique to you. It's not just anybody that fights in the UFC and they've got some level of stardom and so that they can influence people. I think yours is much more... Um, I don't want to say legitimate. It's probably not the right word, but uh, your your influence comes from the heart, and you, and you want people to get better, whether it's in the mind, the body, the spirit, their jujitsu, their fighting, uh, how they live their life. I think that is really unique to you, uh, and I think that's why you know you've had the impact on so many people that you have. I, I appreciate that, man. You know, I I think also that like, you know, we we stand on the, on the, on the shoulders of giants and, you know, training with people like Roberto Maya and you know, guys like Pat and guys like you, everyone, you know, really plays a role. And you, you, I think that's where humility comes in is like, I could never do any of these things or understand any of these things. If I didn't have, you know, great training partners and guys that'd be able to push me and guys that were able to help me throughout my career. Like, you know, Nate probably took more punches than anybody, you know, for the, for the first, like, at least four fights of my career. Um, and, you know, he played a big part in, in our martial art, in my martial arts journey and, and Keith as well and Kirk's and, you know, um, it's every, everybody really, but, you know, we can only be as good as the guys that kind of um, we, we train with. Those are the guys that are pointing out mistakes, whether they're actually pointing or just training with us. And I think that's, that's super important. And I also think though, like, you know, martial arts has changed my life so much. It continues to do it. I think it's one of the best ways to learn about yourself and become humble and to be less insecure and to be more of a man. And, um, 
to me, I think this is a way or a small way where I can have an impact on the world and kind of get people to see themselves in a different light, you know, and it's healing too. I, I know it's been extremely healing for me and in various parts of my life. And, you know, I, I, I want to see that spread around, you know, there, there's a reason why Jigaro Kano really wanted to develop this in Japan as an educational tool and, and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's a multifaceted um, tool for sure. So, uh, I know, I know this is something that has stuck with me that you said, and I, and I tell it to our guys all the time, but flat back beats the stack and the tortoise beats the hare. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, I tell them that I taught you that, but yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, dude, I am so happy and so glad you came on and did this with us, man. And I, uh, I'm looking forward to, to your DVD that's coming out. When Thank is that you. coming out? Uh, you know, good question. It, um, our, the video guy that I have right now planned for it, it lives in Montreal. So I just kind of have to wait for when it's safe for him to travel back into this country. So we were supposed to be filming this month, um, you know, for a release, maybe like July or something like that. So now I'm not so sure, but I hope that this is going to have an impact on, on uh, the jiu-jitsu world and how we see it. And I hope it helps a lot of people. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe summertime, um, but this went by way too fast. We, we, we actually have to do it again. I feel like we only, we're only scratching the surface here of what we could talk about in our experiences, but it's, I have so many more it's, a, it, it's awesome. Just reminiscing with you guys. And uh, I'm definitely down to do this again. So hopefully uh, the next time we do it, it's on the mat. Yeah, exactly. That would be, that would be awesome actually. Cause then we can kind of, we can have a lot of fun as far as breaking things down and talking about, you know, some, some nerd stuff should be cool. <laughs> that would that would be awesome, and I just I, I just want to say I don't want to blow too too much sunshine, but uh, congratulations on the success with Meraki. You opened up an academy in the American capital of the world. You know what I mean? There are so many, uh, you know, world champion and great jujitsu guys out there, and um, everything we've talked about today is a testament to why Meraki's had so much success. So congratulations with that too. If you guys are in the Thanks LA, so much. looking for some place to train, drop in. Yeah, and you guys are always welcome. Thank you guys so so much, man. Can I just say one thing before you call it? Yeah. yeah. Who, who do you get told that you look like a lot? <laughs> <laughs> Typically, it's um, Brad Pitt. No, come uh, on, come on. George, George Clooney. Um, who else? What other uh, internationally known models I like, can think of? Uh, a ben Stiller every once in a while. Okay, so the Ben Stiller thing comes up. Do you really think it's a good idea to wear those EarPod thing, AirPod? <laughs> Because all I can it's think of the whole time is that gel. scene and something about Mary. <laughs> I think you got to rethink this if you're going to be doing stuff on the air. Exactly. All right? Listen, you're supposed to <laughs> get the scene where the stuff's falling Dude, out of there. I can't wait to meet this guy one time. I'd be like, <laughs> you, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. Good Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Let's do it again. Thanks. For, thanks you got for it. it. Peace. You well, buddy. <laughs>